Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. That's Domino. Let's just see if Domino stops barking. It'll be a dog going by. Hello. Well, it's Will Young here. It's the Wellbeing Lab. And I'm in the attic. Yes. Haven't been in the attic for ages. You know what? I just thought to myself, I saw a rerun of Cash in the Attic and I thought, is there any cash up there? <laughs> Are there any dreams up there? I mean, as it happens, I'm under a flight path. Am I happy about it? No. Um, so you will hear some planes going over during this episode. I can only apologise. Well, we've had a lot of feedback. Very useful. I relish feedback. And people would like more depth. So from now, we will be doing one person per show, exploring a topic in greater detail and I think that is going to work really well. So I wanted to let you know that. So this episode, we've got, oh, he's such a great guy. Ian Leslie, he's written a book called How to Disagree, Lessons on Productive Conflict at Work and Home. He's very funny. I just think he's great. There's so much in the book, very rich book, done a lot of, a lot of research and sets a lot of social context and goes into sort of interrogation, uh, talks to interrogators, the police, all these things. So we started our conversation and I asked him, how did he get into this field? It started because I wrote an article for The Guardian, a long piece about interrogation. And I spoke to the world's foremost expert on interrogation, a guy who trains counter-terrorist police in Britain to, and elsewhere uh, to talk to terrorists. But that's what got me thinking. Because a lot of the things he was saying just seemed so fantastically pertinent, not just to these incredibly high pressure, high stakes situation of interrogation, but to just human interaction and you know, difficult conversations generally, any conversation where there's some kind of conflict at stake. And it was talking to him that made me think, wow, first of all, this is an incredibly interesting thing. You know, how do you have a really tough conversation somebody who doesn't want to talk to you, doesn't like you, and certainly disagrees with you about a lot of things. But also, a lot of the things apply to all sorts of difficult conversations that we have in our lives. Even with people you do like, even with people you love, these conversations can be really difficult. And a lot of the principles that he was applying seemed more widely applicable. And what they said was, you know, most interrogators do this really badly, whether it's in the, uh, the police or, or, or the army, um, and they do it completely counterproductively. So they go in and they say, right, you've got to tell me what you know or I'm going to throw that book at you or, or you know, threaten other kind of dark uh, uh, punishments. Um, and of course, that's exactly the wrong thing to do because it, it, it just puts their defences up. It makes them shut down. and They're ready for a battle. That's what they came in for. Whereas the really skilled interrogators like these guys or the guys they train do pretty much the opposite. They'll walk into the room and they, they'll take the, these guys by surprise because they'll say, look, you absolutely have the right not to talk to me. Right? They don't mumble over that bit. They make it very clear. 
I'm not the one in control. You are in control of it. If you don't want to talk to me, that's fine. You can leave this room if you like. I can't tell you what to do. This guy can't tell you what to do. It's up to you. But look, I'm just really interested in, in how you got here. And they are genuinely interested, by the way. One of the things about this is you can't fake it. You have to be curious. And these hardened terrorists or criminals or, have been trained for years or prepared for years for this moment. Just open up <laughs> and and gush. And they've unexpectedly met somebody who actually seems to want to listen to them and to hear them rather than somebody who comes in for a fight and wants to try and shut them down. Empathy seems to play a big part yeah. in all these areas of conflict. And you talk of how there isn't actually a word for talking through something so you have a shared experience, so you reach a new conclusion. <laughs> you know, because I don't like the word yeah. conflict. I actually don't do conflict. But it's, it's interesting you highlight how there isn't a word for what we could be looking yeah, for. Yeah, because we say, you know, argument, or, or let's have an argument about it, or let's have a debate about it. Even the word debate, it just immediately sets you up in a conflict. You know, it makes you think, oh, OK, we're going to debate this, and we're going to kind of take sides and, and so on. There aren't really any good words for kind of a productive, interesting disagreement that aren't a little bit hostile, that don't introduce some note of, of kind of enmity. Um, and I think that's sort of symptomatic of the way we have approached it generally. We just think, oh, oh disagreement, that means we're going to have a fight. For most of us, that means, oh, God, I don't want to do that. And for some people, it's like, yeah, great, a fight. And neither of those reactions are ultimately very uh, helpful. Yeah, and for some people, conflict, this is what I found fascinating in the book, is how conflict can be really tied into someone's identity. So the reactions yeah. that they're getting, they're not able to even hear you. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So when they put people in a brain scanner and they, they kind of looked at what's happening in the brain when somebody reads a statement that disagrees with, with one of their prior views, you know, the bits of the brain that light up are the same bits of the brain that light up when somebody thinks they're about to be physically attacked. Right. So in a very kind of like deep evolutionary sense, we connect being disagreed with with an attack on me. Right. So you're not just disagreeing with a, this point of view that I put forward or this opinion or this idea. You're basically coming at me with a with a stone axe or whatever it is. It's very difficult for us to get away from that. Right. It's always just a, a little sense of tension and tightening when somebody directly disagrees with us. And a lot of the time, that means our immediate reaction is to do our best to put our fists up or whatever, is to defend or attack which as a form of defence so that we don't get hurt ourselves. And when both parties are doing that, then you just have a row or one or both parties just leaves, you know, metaphorically or literally leaves the room and just doesn't engage at all. And so a lot of the job of having a good disagreement is recognising that feeling in yourself, also recognising that it's happening to the other person and doing your best to kind of lower your defences and lower their defences. There's a bit that I shared with my friends because I thought it was so great how people can get one of two reactions. So they can either go into a challenge response or a threat response. And you give an example of maybe if someone's giving a speech. So the challenge response is it will produce some sort of adrenaline but also blood will flow to the brain and get the brain prepared but in the threat response there's sort of an increased heartbeat but the blood doesn't get pumped 
to the right area. So it's almost like that area gets taken offline. That's right. That's right. I mean, you, you described it perfectly. Sports physiologists and psychologists are quite interested in this, as you can imagine. In a challenge state, right? Yeah, everything's working a little bit faster. Your blood's pumping a little bit faster. And that's good. It's actually kind of making you more physically alert and more mentally alert. So you want some nerves, right? And this applies to a good disagreement. It's, it's okay to feel a little bit tense and a little bit kind of on your game, right? That could actually make you smarter. It can make the whole conversation smarter. But, you know, if that reaction overshoots and goes too far and you move into a threat state, then, yeah, that's the state in which you kind of basically okay, shut down. I'm going to be as stupid as possible here because <laughs> I don't want to engage in this. And I'm just going to say, you know, oh, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. And it just sort of lowers the IQ of, of, of the whole conversation. So getting into a challenge state is good, but we've got to try and stop ourselves and stop the other person from moving into threat state. When you were doing the book, were there things that you were learning about yourself and how you reacted to things whilst you were writing it? And how have you moved on, you know, going forward? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm part of the reason I wrote it is that I'm a fairly conflict averse person myself, right? I'm not very good at it. And there are times when I've looked back and I thought, well, you know, I really should have said something there or I wish I had said something either to defend myself or other people. Maybe I should have stepped in there and said, that's that's not right. Or I should have been, maybe I said that obliquely when I should have said it more directly. So on. I'm sure we all have these, right, these moments, right? And so because I talk to so many people who are very skillful at having these disagreements and making them go well, it's actually made me a lot more ready and open and confident about just disagreeing openly and confident that I can do it in a way where it won't lead to an awful row where I can put my opinions, views out in the open and say, look, this is what I think and this is where I, I, I disagree with you. But because I've just followed some of the guidelines that, that I've learned, you know, from the book and from doing the research, I feel much more confident about, about doing... This even applies at home, right? Well, of course. I would say that's one of the biggest places. Yeah, I mean, so... Because one of the things that I learned was how damaging it is when you don't have these disagreements out, right? When you kind of avoid them all, all the time, the disagreements don't go away. They just become passive aggression. They can become submerged into a kind of bitter, seething resentment. Um, and that's not good for your relationship, right? So what I've learned, like with just with my wife, for instance, is I'm more likely to open up and directly disagree with her about things and vice versa. And not to feel that when we're having a little row because I'm not talking about really angry like screaming matches here I'm talking about hey no I don't agree with this well, that's not the worst thing in the world in fact it's perfectly fine and good and healthy and if the kids are there that's fine it's not that like we have to go into another room to do this disgusting thing called a, an argument with each other it's fine kids people have rows they still love each other they still like each other that kind of is a little culture change I think within my family <laughs> that has happened since researching and writing the book through my own treatment, like going into treatment centres for trauma and a lot of therapy, lots of group therapy, one of the things that I learned was how to use language in a clean, safe way in a group and also how to give feedback and carry that into relationships. So I'm really big on talking from the I position. I'm really big on actually having a real set model that keeps both of us safe when we're doing, I mean, in a way it is kind of feedback, which sounds very kind of like therapy speak. So I will say, you know, Ian, when I heard you say this, what came up for me was this, what I feel about it is this is what I prefer. And I really stick to that model with friends and in relationships with family and even in business when I don't even think people realise that I'm doing it. 
they might maybe think, God, he's being a bit... But they don't really notice it because I've normalised it so much now. Yeah. Am I too therapied in doing that? Well, no, I think what you've just said is, is important because where I think this can go wrong is if people treat it as like a series of little techniques or tricks that I've picked up and now I'm going to do one on this person, right? And it can come across like that when people are sort of still almost kind of following a script that they've learned. But I think once you've kind of absorbed it and you've just kind of absorbed it into the kind of rhythm of your of your conversation and your being, it doesn't become like that. It's just you've learned to kind of behave in a slightly different way and you're being authentic. I mean, that's the important thing. As you know, I laid down a series of kind of rules or guidelines in the book and the last one is be real, right? None of this will work if, if you're kind of faking it. And it sounds like you, you've got to that place. And as you know, the therapy arena is a great learning space for having these tough conversations. And in fact, just going back to that piece about I wrote about interrogation, what really made it click and made me think, wow, this is amazing, is when the interrogation expert said to me, I learned a lot from studying how they've changed the way they do addiction therapy. The field of addiction therapy used to be based around the principle that we need to break these people down until they realise what a terrible thing they're doing to their bodies and their families and their lives. And the moment they did that, the addict, the patient, that would get their defences up and they would say, you know, screw you, I actually like doing whatever it is, you know, drinking, take, taking drugs, whatever. I'm not going to let you tell me what's what I'm doing to my life. It's my life, OK? And so it's actually incredibly counterproductive, but they've been doing it for years and years. They're saying, you're doing a terrible thing here, you've got to understand... And the field was really kind of revolutionised by a couple of guys 25 years ago who came along and said, this is the wrong way around. <laughs> they know there's a problem. That's why they're talking to you in the, in the first place. You don't need to tell them there's a problem. That'll just get their defences up. What you need to do is listen to them and really listen and sit them down and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, in what's going on. You tell me. Now, you can then guide them and kind of help them understand the problem and how to solve it. But your job is not to break them (laughs) your job is to let them tell you just like the job of a smart interrogator is let the criminal say what he wants to say anyway most of them want to tell their story um the job of an addiction therapist is to let that person work it but you know you tell me if that if that kind of resonates from your experience of therapy well yeah i mean what comes up for me hearing that is an example you give of a man and a woman in a experiment who have a conversation and they watch it back and the man is saying well this is when I'm trying to say this this is when I'm trying to say this and the woman is saying well this is when I'm not being heard here this is when I'm not being heard here and you go on to talk about how people can approach something very informative and so other people can approach things very emotionally but I'd love you to talk more about that. So and this is a really kind of simple little model to kind of bear in one's mind whenever we're having a tough conversation right which is that there's basically two channels through which the conversation is happening at once one of them is is spoken and articulated one of them is submerged and unarticulated but it's deeply felt right even if we don't realize it's there so there's the content level that's the thing that we are arguing about right whether we're arguing about who does the most housework or a political argument we are arguing about that thing that's the content And then there is the relationship level, which is communicated in lots of different ways through the kind of choice of words we use through our body language, through our tone of voice, through the way we sit. could be anything, which is what do you think about me and what do I think about you? You Are you respecting me? Does it seem like you like me? Right. We're incredibly alert to that kind of thing, or at least 
some people are some people and actually the interesting thing is that some people are more alert to it than others in any given conversation and without wishing to you know project stereotypes the research does suggest that women are more likely to be tuned into that relationship level than men are and so the men will be kind of focused on yes but i think we're talking about you know the rotor that we're doing on this housework meanwhile the woman's like you're talking to me like i you know she's just like really annoyed because she's not getting the respect that she wants she or she doesn't feel like she's getting the affection whatever it is and now he starts to think oh she's being so rational she's not even engaging with me about you know our housework rotor whatever it is and she's thinking oh my god he just doesn't get it at all and the whole thing kind of goes wrong which i think by the way is probably the most common thing that can happen in relationships yeah that one person feels not heard right and you're absolutely right it could be the other way around. The woman and the man, obviously, it could be two men, two women. But there's usually an imbalance in, you know, or often an imbalance between the two partners in that situation. You know, who's focusing on the content and who's attuned to the relationship level. And everyone should realise that unless that relationship level is settled, the content argument is going to go badly. <laughs> it's just going to disrupt what's going on. Uh, like sort of coming from underground and kind of disrupting whatever is on the surface. So how do you settle that? How do you... Right. Well, this is interesting because that leads to one of the principles that I talk about in the book, which is first make a connection. Before you get into the really difficult bit of the conversation, try and make sure that you settle that relationship level first in the conversation, right? I don't mean fix everything about your relationship. I mean just in that conversation, which could be with a stranger, could be someone with you know really well, do your best to put that person at ease to make them feel that you are listening to them. Best way to do that is by actually listen to them, by the way. Don't, you know, again, don't fake it. Just going back to some of our kind of more extreme examples, it's a sequencing thing. You fix the relationship bit first and then you get to the content. So hostage negotiators, right? When they pick up the phone to the person who's in the hostage situation, they don't actually immediately say, right, okay, how are we going to get these hostages out? What deal are we going to make? What are we going to... They spend a few minutes saying things like, hey, listen, um, I just want to say everyone's really impressed with the way you've been handling this so far. Uh, you've been really calm. I can tell you, you know, you're going to be a good person to, to negotiate with. So, um, Whatever it is, it just lowers the temperature of the conversation. It makes that person who probably is feeling extremely insecure feel a little bit more secure. And then that negotiation is going to be a lot more productive because that person's not going to be screaming and kicking and trying to prove how big they are all, all the time. Now, this applies to, yeah, applies to every kind of difficult conversation we have. If the other person is feeling really un insecure and threatened, then they're going to react badly. And a lot of the time when you think the other person is being, oh, why are they being so crazy and irrational or rude or sullen and not talking? It's probably because they feel like you're not giving them the respect that they want. So you need to think about how to do that. And yeah, and that might be a little bit of putting their, you know, ego at ease, flattering them. It might but just be listening to them for a while properly. There's all sorts of things. But but yeah, just, just showing that person that you're not just there to kind of push them around. Yeah, so how you set it out. I think you use an example in the book of the first three minutes, the most important, and then... I think it's something like only 4% have a turnaround. It, like, if the first three minutes are bad, then 96% of the people end up not having a resolution. Yeah, yeah, because these things escalate, right? You, you can start off with just a little, you know, hostility in the conversation. Maybe you do that by accident, but the other person picks up on it. 
and they become hostile. And then you notice them. They go, why are they being hostile to me? And the whole thing kind of spirals. So particularly in that first stage of the conversation, you've got to be really kind of cognizant of, of that emotional relationship level. I'm going to interrupt this conversation while we go to a quick break and we'll be back after this. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. So we have connection... What's the next principle? Let's, let's go through your principles. The next one was let go of the rope. This was something that the interrogation expert said to me. He said, look, a suspect will often do something like they'll put their feet up on the table. And what they're trying to do is try and provoke you into a little power struggle. Because once you're engaged in a little power struggle, you're not going to get anything useful from them. And you've got to get, it's just a waste, it's just running down the clock, right? And so I've learned to say, fine, if you want your feet on the table, I'm... I'm letting go of that rope. I'm not going to get into a tug of war with you over something like that. It's not what I'm here for. And Lawrence, the interrogation guy, said to me, you know, it's very much like with children. Because, <laughs> you know, he's, he's got children. One of the first things he says to the people he trains is, if you can deal with teenagers, you can deal with terrorists. You know, teenagers will throw up these things that they want to argue about. And you've got to basically pick your battles and say, well, no, I don't think I really want to have a tug of war with you about that. I'd rather talk about this other thing that, that I care about. So, look, you know, one of the most common ways a disagreement goes wrong is that it becomes a battle for status and for power. Don't let that happen. Any way you can stop that happening. And that might be kind of putting yourself down a bit and letting the other person feel that they're the big guy in the room, right? If that's what they want to feel, fine. Is that any skin off your nose? Probably not, right? So, uh, yeah, just, just don't let it become a, a status battle. Yeah. And then the next, what would the next thing be? The one I was getting onto just there was giving face, right? Which is kind of, you know, in, a, in any conversation, you want to put on your best face, you want to save face, you want to project your best face, your best kind of image and so on. And the really kind of skilled disagreeers are experts, not just at projecting their own face. They don't put too much work into that because they, they're kind of relaxed about how they're coming across. They're more interested in how could I make the other person look good. If they're going to back down, if they're going to agree with me, do what I want them to do or say what I want them to or think what I want them to think. I want them to do it in a way that they feel good about it because otherwise they'll never do it. I want to give them sometimes called the golden bridge of retreat, right? Say so yeah. an honourable way to, to change their minds. And somebody who was really a genius of this was Nelson Mandela. And I tell a story in the book, which I'll just tell very briefly here, about how early in his presidency actually just before democratic elections had been held and he was kind of president in waiting effectively he was being threatened by the leader of a 15,000 strong white supremacist militia who were very angry about the prospect of a black president 
And uh, it was being led by this general who was a very, very kind of senior general in the South African army under apartheid. And Mandela thought, well, I can try and crush this guy with because now I'm in charge of, of the army, or, but it might lead to a civil war. And actually, I want the country to be unified. So I don't want to start off like that. And so the general, very surprised one day when he gets an invitation to Mandela's house, and not just to his official residence, but to his, his home in the suburbs. And he turns up, he expects the staff to open the door. And it, Mandela opens the door and Mandela's got a big grin on his face. And he says, hey, General Fieldjian, great to meet you. I've heard so much of you, you know, you're a highly respected general. It's very nice to, to finally talk to you. And, um, and he says, before we have the, the meeting proper, because they have a few other people there, he says, can me and you just go into the living room? and uh, just have a little chat. And he serves him tea. He says, you know, do you take milk? Do you take sugar? Let me pour it for you. And Field Joe, to cut a long story short, becomes absolutely, just falls in love with Mandela. <laughs> um, disarms his militia uh, a few months later, um, or pretty promptly, and actually takes part in democratic elections. And for the rest of his life is a, is a big admirer of Mandela um, and helps kind of make the new country work. And he remembered that moment of, of Mandela serving the tea as the kind of transformative moment. Now, why do I think that's so important? Because I think what Mandela had intuited, because he was such a brilliant kind of reader of people, is that this man is being incredibly kind of aggressive because he fears humiliation. And, uh, and that goes for a lot of his people as well. So my job here is, as the person who's actually more powerful now, right, I'm in the position of power, my job here is to big him up a bit. Fine, I'll pour you tea. It could be very nice to you in my home. And that'll just lower his defences to such an extent. No, it'll give him face. It'll, it'll make him look good. And I'll kind of talk about how I respect his, you know, his service. And then we can get into, OK, well, how are we going to make this democracy work? I suppose it's like someone is foregoing their ego it makes me think of how i mean it, i worry because you know the example of nelson mandela is such a brilliant mature <laughs> successful example and yet where we're at now not only perhaps in the upper echelons of leadership but also what we're seeing modeled on social media and you talk about that really brilliantly in the book at the beginning mm. of the book is that negative conflict is sort of encouraged really like websites social media accounts their stuff goes up by 20 percent or something if they if there's negative activity on their yeah. sites and i wonder if we're in a state now where we just completely don't know how to handle conflict in a healthy adult way well it can feel like that sometimes especially on social media which is very very tough place to have a productive disagreement of any kind. I think there's a few reasons for that, but one of them is the old problem of feeling uncomfortable with actual disagreement. In an actual engaged disagreement and argument, you do actually have to listen to the other person somewhat, and you do actually somewhat have to think about what you're saying and what you're thinking. And we find that a little bit uncomfortable, a bit of an ass uh, at the very least. And one of the ways to shut it down is just to not say anything. Another way is to just to condemn that person and to be very angry. That's just another cowardly way to, to get out of it, I think. You helped me this weekend because I was talking about something and I wanted to be open to having my mind changed. But I guess I'm perhaps functional enough that my identity isn't or sense of safety isn't tied into whatever I was talking about at the time. But I, I think 
wouldn't it be great if we were all sort of open? But I feel, I feel like we're sort of getting less open and it's easier to be more opposed and move into these polar opposite zones. I think so. I mean, I, I'm to a certain extent, there is what happens on Twitter and there is the real world. Yes. And, they, and they, they, you know, they're not the same. But yeah, I th- there is a sense that we'll go back to what we were saying earlier and you just touched on it there, that if your point of view, your opinion is rooted in your identity, you know, it becomes very closely associated with it, then you're going to feel much more threatened when your opinion is challenged because it feels like an attack on you, right? Trying to kind of separate the view that we're thinking about, the opinion that we're thinking about from who we are, just saying, it's fine, I can change my mind on this and it's not going to you know, hurt me. I think it's something we should strive to do, even if we see lots of other people doing the opposite. Yes, and I suppose I'm thinking for myself, maybe I should be more forgiving and allow other people to change their mind from maybe what they were thinking 10 years ago. Because often I can think, well, they did that then, they're going to be the same. But actually, maybe I should be more generous and I'm thinking particularly politicians and think, well, hang on, they're allowed to change their mind. I'm going to now treat you as my Agni uncle. What happens if someone wants to get their partner to change their mind on something? So, for example, and we're not talking like political beliefs, but like, can they do more of the washing up? Can they occasionally take the dog for a walk? Yeah, okay. So I think the principle to bear in mind here is what we're talking about in terms of the interrogator doesn't walk into the room and say, right, you need to tell me what what you're going to say. Because that immediately pushes that person into a defensive posture, right? And And they push back. And it's the same thing when you want to persuade someone. I think if you go in too directly and you say, right, I really think you should be doing this, then you risk creating, the psychologists call it reactance sometimes, which is just somebody pushing back because they feel like you're trying to control them. And so to avoid that reactance, you need to kind of, I, I think, just be a little bit less on the nose, direct about it. Just have a conversation about it. And in that conversation, let them know how you feel about it. And then try and understand how they feel about it. And then try and work out where where your two views intersect. Because usually there's a little bit of them that agrees with you about this already, even if they don't realise it yet. And if you can be sympathetic to their point of view, then... Yeah. So I, I just think it's it's that thing of um, letting them work it out, you know, in collaboration with you rather than you going in and say, right, this is the way it is. And I'm going to hammer away at this point until you submit. Someone said to me once, I can't remember who it was, but they were very wise. And they said, you know, be mindful of where you have conversations, because often couples mm. will either have it in the car, very close proximity or in mm. bed, again, close proximity. That's really interesting, yeah. Yeah. The, the other thing about those two situations is that you're not face-to-face. No. So, you, you, you know, you can't read the other's eyes, you know, expression in a way that you would. Um, and that's why, you know, Twitter is so bad for this kind of thing. Because the more richness of information you can get from how the other person's feeling and thinking, the better. When you cut away those signals, either because you're not looking at them or because you're texting them... <laughs> it's more likely that the argument becomes derailed. Well, that's probably a whole other thing, isn't it? Is the whole text message thing. Oh, yeah. I remember years ago saying to my mum, I mean, my poor parents, they probably rude the day I started having therapy and learnt boundaries. <laughs> but, you know, I said, when you do a message and you don't have a kiss at the end, 
this is what I make up about it. I feel like you're kind of attacking me rather than like some messages will have kisses on the end. It was particularly to do with a certain subject, which I won't go into as well, by the way, to do with another family member. And I'd be like, then I'm feeling like that's quite aggressive. So like, can you either put a kiss on the end or never have kisses on the end? And I have to say it made a massive difference. Oh, okay, that's good. Because one of the things I do think is slightly underestimated in these situations is explicitly spelling out these things yeah because it feels a bit naff doesn't it yeah to say it but actually when you do it yeah it can and the same with disagreements you know even if you're say you're in a team or, or at work and you say this is how we do disagreement we do it respectively we welcome it don't sit on it let it out it always feels a bit naff to do that, but you do it. And actually people really respond to it because they're like, oh, okay, so now I know how to do this. And your mum's probably like, okay, well, that, that makes sense. It's pretty easy for me to... Another bit of honesty. Scandinavians do it very well. Um, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, me too. It was a wonderful conversation. Very enjoyable. Ian Leslie, another find, I think. Bring him back. We're going to get emails. Bring Ian Leslie back. Really nice guy. As always, do let me know what you think about the conversation. And um, I'm sure we can come back to conflict in more detail in other times, particularly within relationships, language used, all those kind of things. Maybe we're just whetting your appetite. We're teasing you. Someone has been in touch. I need to call this a section, something like... I mean, this is awful, but Communication Corner, I'm saying this because I haven't eaten yet. Communication Corner is probably one of the worst. Something Corner, let... Anyway, I'm rambling. You've been in touch. Will, hi. Hello. Thank you for another brilliant podcast. I'm really enjoying them. My pleasure. It's myself and Amy just beavering away. Just listened to episode 10. My God, we've done 10 episodes. Uh, Trauma and EMDR as someone who has benefited from EMDR over the last 12 months. Following a breakdown, it was so refreshing to hear it creeping its way into the mainstream. Well, that is good. I was very excited when I saw the title of the episode and thrilled to hear your guest speaker explain that often when we experience trauma, we get stuck in trauma time. And part of you is reliving the trauma every day. EMDR brings you back to the present moment and moves the trauma in such a way that you are not stuck there and reliving it. My amazing therapist combined reparenting and EMDR. This reparenting, self-resourcing practice with EMDR has changed my life. Part of me was stuck as a 10-year-old, stuck in trauma time. I now know, with the help of EMDR, that I'm 34 years old and fully capable of keeping myself safe. This is amazing. Thank you so much for your podcasts, documentaries and books. I look forward to your next episode. What lovely... I'm so pleased to hear that you've got so much out of EMDR, you know, as well as reparenting, uh, self-resourcing practices... And having had very bad dissociation myself, it's not a nice thing to be. Uh, What a lovely email. A message via Instagram. Hi, Will, I just want to say I'm loving the Wellbeing Lab podcast. I've been very fortunate. I've not suffered from mental health issues in my life. You are fortunate. (laughs) Um, I do, however, think that this podcast is invaluable in educating us. Very fortunate people who have not suffered. So keep up the awesome work. Well, thank you very much. Dear Will, missed your dulcet tones on the Homo Sapiens podcast. So I was glad to binge most of this series on my five-hour drive to Coventry from Scotland. Oh, well, that's sweet. Really fascinating stuff. And as someone who's often suffered from anxiety about many aspects of my life, I've been able to take something from each episode, hoping for more episodes. That's really sweet. I've listened to Will's appearance on Fern Cotton's Happy Place recently and hugely related to what Will was saying. Really admire Will's honesty and just how open he was talking about his own experiences. I've now, of course, begun to follow the Wellbeing Lab and can relate to every single episode. I could write a book on my mental health journey 
I'm only 34 and my traumas date back to when I was around 10 years old. It's only in the past four years I've begun to dig deeper into events that I have buried for years. Well done. Whilst I've been extremely unlucky to suffer several traumas in life, I was not able to label them as such until 2017 when I discovered my partner's porn sex addiction when I was eight months pregnant. Following the birth of my daughter, I was thrown straight into therapy. Initially, it was talking therapy. However, it did not help with my rage and anger towards everything. I didn't understand dissociation at this time. I then moved to Wiltshire, where I saw another therapist, and at this time was finally diagnosed with depression, anxiety, stress and PTSD. I started medication last year. I decided to try EMDR to help with my PTSD and anger, and I've made some progression. I still find the dissociation one of the hardest things to cope with. It is very difficult. Yeah. I am there with you, it's not a nice thing. The feeling of your mind completely leaving your body and you don't know what is about to happen is petrifying. It is petrifying, I really validate that. I particularly enjoyed your most recent episode relating to trauma and EMDR. Will and team, your podcast continues to lift me when I'm feeling low, knowing that I'm in a safe place when listening and definitely not alone. That makes me so happy, I'm so pleased. I will continue my journey and wanted to say thank you for doing such a fabulous podcast. Keep up the positive work. That's really such a lovely message via Instagram. And I just think you're being so brave. Well done. It sounds like there's a lot going on for you. And no, dissociation is really difficult. What I would say actually is really, I mean, we have spoken about the body a bit and this, you know, settling the body. And we will be talking about Reiki in, in a future episode. But really, maybe try and find some... Um, you know, therapies to settle your body, be that Reiki, acupuncture, cranial osteopathy, equine therapy, have a listen back. We did a thing on equine therapy. If you feel comfortable being with someone within a proximity. But as ever, thank you so much. If you want to get in touch, email hello at wellbeinglabpodcast.com, Twitter at the Wellbeing Lab, Instagram and Facebook at the Wellbeing Lab Podcast. Next week, it's narcissism with Dr. Chetna Kang. And let me just tell you something right now. She knows what she's talking about. You don't want to miss it. Till then, lots of love. Bye. Did you know the Wellbeing Lab is produced by Audio AF and is part of the Acast Creator Network? It's true. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.